invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 28. We are concluding our series, Paul Sails for Rome, from Acts 27 verse 1 all the way to 28 verse 16. We're on part 6 now, which is looking at verses 11 to 16, the final verses that we're going to look at this morning. So we've been on quite a journey with the Apostle as we've seen him depart from Caesarea and make that trip by ship, the Adramidium. The ship is the Adramidium as he sets sail from Caesarea, makes the 70-mile trip up the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Sidon, spends a day there or so, and moves on from there, sailing under the lee, uh, or the quiet side, if you will, the leeward side of the island of Cyprus, moving along the southern coast of Cilicia and Lycia, where they come to a major port there, where they're receiving grain for the Roman uh, people, for the Roman government, from Alexandria to the south in in, uh, Africa. They try to harbor at Canidus, and they get blown south down to Crete, and that's how they end up in Crete. Instead of continuing west over to Italy to deliver uh, their cargo and their prisoners and the passengers to Rome, they're now finding themselves at Crete. They are at Fairhavens there. They pass Salome on the eastern side of the island, and they go underneath. They pass Lycia about five miles to Fairhavens. And Paul suggests they winter there. It's past the uh, Day of Atonement celebration. This would have been October 5th in 59 AD, which is the time frame in which this takes place. And so there's warnings not to sail during that time period to about mid-November. And by November 11th, the seas are virtually shut down in in terms of any sort of Uh, uh, shipping at all because there's just too much risk, too much danger. They don't take his advice. They set sail to make it to the western side of the island of Crete. And their nice, gentle southern breeze turns into a vicious northeaster, blowing them south, headed toward the what is they referred to as the quicksand, the graveyard of churches in the greater Syrtes, just off the northern coast of Africa. They're tossed. They're in a, the equivalent of a hurricane, a tempest, it's referred to. The ship is being battered. The people are being battered. And they're tossed for 14 days. So for two weeks, they're, they're at the mercy of the wind. They let down the sails before it blows them down into the greater Syrtes, they let down the mainsail, and they're tossed to the west all the way across over to a tiny little dot of an island called Malta. We saw them there as they dropped anchor in the stern of the ship, pointing it toward the shore so that they might be able to lift anchor in the morning when they could see something because they didn't know exactly where they were, but they could hear land. They could hear the waves crashing on the shore of Malta. And so they point the ship in that direction, drop anchor, let the wind blow, and that's where they spend the night. They can't see the stars, so they have no way of navigating or discerning where they are at all. So in the morning, they head in toward the shore, but the ship gets hung up on a current, uh, two, where two currents meet, and there's a sandbar there. They're hung up there. 
but it's not a good situation because the waves are still battering the stern of the boat. It's starting to blow the ship apart. They had already frapped, which is wrapping the front hull of the boat with cable, which is the ordinary protocol for ships of that era that were made out of like tongue and groove planks. But the back of the boat now is falling apart. They're in danger. All of them are completely wore out at this point. They jettisoned the cargo. They had jettisoned all the ship's tackle, everything. It's all gone. They're hungry. They're weary. And, of course, the apostle is thinking of their care. And he's been told by the Lord himself that they would land safely if they did not abandon the ship. So that happened, and we saw that happen. 276 in total are creeping up on the shores of Malta early in the morning. They meet with the natives there, the Maltese natives, and who are greeting them with a nice warm fire. There's a cold rain. You can imagine the sight. Roman soldiers, these people, prisoners, that have been beat and battered on this altogether about a three-month journey all the way around. What I just described in brief took about that much time. So you can only imagine what it looked like, and they're yet met with what the Scripture says is unusual kindness. They build a fire for the people to get them warm. We see the kindness of our Creator God coming out, even in those natives who were speaking in a foreign tongue that they didn't understand. It was a form of Arabic uh, because of those uh, Phoenicians people who were seafaring people that were from Arabian areas or parts of the world that is centuries before Christ had uh, planted and, and uh Native, the natives of there come from that descendancy. So Paul's gathering sticks for the fire. We see this wonderful kindness that's going on from the people. We see the hospitality in the main chief man of the island, which would have been the equivalent of the mayor, uh, Publius, who invites them into his home. We don't know how many of them. But they came into his home, spent three days there, where Paul had discovered that Publius's father was sick with dysentery. He goes in and lays his hands on his father and heals him. So the people come to be healed by the Apostle Paul. And they return this kindness with their own kindness. They honor them greatly, the text says, and give them everything that they need when it's time three months later for them to set sail once again. They'll make the 90-mile trip up to uh, uh, Sicily, and they will stop at Syracuse on the eastern side of Sicily, and then they'll go up through the Messina Straits, make it up to uh, Puteoli, which is just next to Naples, Italy. And then from there, they walk the remaining 130 miles to Rome. I go through that so that we can appreciate what transpires here at the end. And so we have a greater appreciation for how this wonderful historical book on the planting of the Church of Jesus Christ ends, how we see it conclude, and the things that we can extrapolate from it as we've observed the life of the Apostle Paul. And we can see his confidence in the sovereignty of God in all things, his unshakable faith, his care and compassion for others. So what I want to do this morning is finish up this portion of text, get through a little bit of this travel log information, but then I'm going to f finish with some final 
applicational uh, uh, principles that we can extrapolate from our journey with the Apostle Paul. So let's read together verse 11 through verse 16 as Paul is on the final stretch, the home stretch for Rome. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Pudioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for not just this portion of Acts, but for the entirety of it, for all that you've shown us over these past now three years in this book. It's remarkable. That's an understatement. Your amazing work as our Christ was ascended going back to his rightful place next to the Father, but sending another, sending that Holy Spirit down to now, not just by special appointment, to accomplish particular tasks as we see him do in the Old Testament, but now to literally dwell in the people of God. Amazing. And we see great things happen, healings, and we see transformations, people coming to Christ, and the church is being built. We've seen as he's gone from town to town and place to place and suffered great persecution, rejection, and yet people being saved eternally because of their faith in Christ. We thank you for all of these things and many, many more. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to finish well this particular portion that we might be continue our process of transformation in our lives as we continue to follow you to our final destination. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So verse 11, after three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship Alexandria with the twin gods as figureheads. So this is where they wintered. This is Paul wanted to spend that rough winter in Fairhavens. They didn't, and so you know the rest of the story. So they spent that required three months on Malta. And these months, we don't have any more information on. It just picks up when they finally got on the ship of Alexandria, another uh, grain-hauling ship that was going to uh, hit the seas again now that the danger is over. So it's probably sometime in early March. They set out from Caesarea in probably mid-August. So now in total, we're looking at about six months, this journey in totality, as Paul had appealed to Caesar and now is being taken to Rome to stand before Caesar. And so 
we see them moving along with these twin gods, as it's mentioned here. This is Castor and Pollux are their names. They're twins. They were often on the bow of the ships in these carved wooden figures because they saved supposedly uh, mariners from uh, perishing from peril. But also they were used in war to protect them in war. And that's all that that is. These are either the sons of, of Zeus or Jupiter as the mythology goes on. And that's really all that needs to be said about uh, the, these, this mythology, which is well stated. It is a myth. So verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, just if you can at least follow the red line, that's the, the description I just gave through, but where it says Cilicia there, or I'm sorry, uh, Sicily, it looks like the Italy looks like a boot, and it looks like what the boot's kicking. That's an island. There's a tiny bit of water called the Messina Straits that separates Sicily from Italy proper. So anyway, that's where they're headed now up to Syracuse at Sicily. They stayed there for three days, the text says, and from there we made a circuit around and arrived at uh, Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. So Syracuse, as I mentioned, is about 90 miles from Malta. That little dot up to Syracuse is about 90 miles. And they spent a few days there. And then they made the 70-mile journey to the Straits of Messina up between the Boot and the island of Sicily. And then to Regium, which is modern-day uh, Regio, is what it's called today. It's right next to Naples. Italy, if you know your geography. But from there, they sailed north along the coast. They made a 210-mile trek up to the north um, as they went to Puteoli, which is called Puzzoli today in its uh, current name. So they enjoyed the favorable wind from the south, so it only took a day, which is really amazing. Um, given in the speed with which they were able to land there. Now, what I'm hastening to get to is we spent a lot of time on the details of the travelogue. I'm interested in learning what applies to us rather than going home just nodding our heads and saying, wow, that's a wonderful uh, travel show. Uh, why is this story given to us today? Is there any pertinency to us? Should there be anything that we see or read here that's going on in this story that remains eternally, that is part of the eternal, inspired, authoritative record of the living God that is relevant to us. Well, there's plenty, as we've seen all the way through the entire historical record of the book of Acts. But here, in verse 14, we see the imperative need for Christian fellowship. This is something that remains. This transcends time. We need each other. We need Christian fellowship, we were designed to function well together. And that's God's intention. We were created by our creator as social beings. So Paul's no different. Paul's a great apostle in all of the achievements God has accomplished through him, but he's a, he's a man. He's a human being. And I want you to think about what he's been through so far, especially if you've been with us long enough to follow all the way from his conversion in chapter 9 all the way through to chapter 28. The suffering that he's endured since chapter 19 and going forward when 
he came to Jerusalem to bring the offering from the missionary trips that he had made. And they made all sorts of accusations to him and wanted to kill him. And his standing before the Sanhedrin and, the Hedron and their false accusations to him and him being taken to Caesarea to stand before two different Roman governors, Governor Felix and Governor Festus, neither of which knew what to do with him. Felix put him in prison. He didn't know what to do with him. He put him in jail for two years until Festus came on board. And Festus said, I don't, I don't know what to make of this. As King Agrippa came along, I can handle this because he's a Herod. And the Herod family were Jewish. You'd never know it by the way they conducted their lives. But he, in his pride, said, oh, I, I, I understand Judaic issues, so I'll, I can adjudicate this, no problem. And Paul gets done. There isn't a single witness against him. Nothing can be substantiated in terms of the charges they originally made. The people who originally made them aren't even there. So Agrippa and Festus, neither one know what really to do with him, but Paul had appealed to Caesar. You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. And so that's why he's on this trip. He's going to get to Rome, but it has only little to do with the Roman government or even the Sanhedrin. Those are simply the God's secondary agents to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, which is to send his apostle to Rome. What's interesting and, and bewildering is how sometimes God accomplishes his purposes in the lives of the people that he providentially moves around to accomplish his purposes for his glory. But Paul is never moved by that. He's never shaken by that. He's never going, what is God doing? As we would say, it's become a favorite word around here, he doesn't dither. Paul doesn't dither. He simply accepts providentially the things that happen to him, whether it's a crowd trying to beat him to death or it's a Sanhedrin lying about him. And those who are seeking to take his life or incarcerate him, whatever it is. So Paul is warned, to say the least. He's battered from this sea journey, from the storms and all of the rest. And verse 14 says, there we found brothers. How sweet that is. And we're invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. It's notable, isn't it, that there's already a Christian community well-established there? Of course, it's not really surprising. We remember in chapter 18 when Luke wrote about Emperor Claudius in 49 AD, so that would have been 10 years beforehand, wrote an edict expelling all the Jews from where? Remember? Rome? Yeah. So he expelled all the Jews from Rome and Historical documents show that what had blown up was an issue involving someone named Crestus, who is thought to be, of course, Christ. So already the gospel had gotten into Rome in 49 AD, 10 years before Paul's sailing. So it doesn't surprise us that there are well-established Christians there in and around Rome. So Christianity existed at probably at least this long. 
But the most, the best evidence that it existed before 59 AD is in 56 AD when he wrote the letter to the Roman church. It was already well established. So they were there. They were there. Verse 15, and the brothers there, when we, they heard about us, came as far as the foreign forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. That's 43 miles, friends. You realize they didn't have a car. There was no Uber or Lyft. They walked. The love and affection that he's met with after what he's been through. I'd like you to think about. 43 miles they came and met him at this. There's a marketplace there. There's a, there's a marketplace in Apius um, that uh, the writer, the Roman poet, said of the Apian way. It has a, mark, a marketplace there that he described as crammed with boatmen and stingy tavern keepers. That's how Horace described it. So they went 10 miles further or 33 miles just south of Rome and there were more fellow Christians there to greet him. And how sweet this must have been for him. Why all this attention providentially from God appointed for him? Well, I gave that some thought. It says here, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. What does that imply? It implies the opposite of courage. He was what? He was weak. He's broken. We have reason to believe he suffered from a lot of uh, some significant physical infirmities. We know he's been stoned in Lystra. We know he's been beaten with rods, according to his testimony to the Corinthian church when he wrote that letter, beaten with rods three times, shipwrecked three times, a day and night in the open sea, in danger of rivers, in danger of robbers, of his own countrymen. He's been through a lot. You can imagine how busted up and weak, especially after. Now, the Lord, if this is you or I, what are we thinking about the Lord's plan for us when he told us you must get to Rome? That's what he told him. But he started with this. He didn't just say you must go to Rome when Jesus showed up to Paul. He said, don't be afraid. What does that imply? He's a man. There's got to be some, I mean, apprehension isn't even a strong enough word. There's got to be some deep-seated fears there, yeah? My favorite coach, the best coach that ever lived, what's his name? Don't say Tom Landry. Vince Lombardi said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Do you find that? I do. When I'm tired, that's when I'm weakest, and that's, the, greater oppor- the greatest opportunity for fear to enter in, right? So this is Paul. He's broken. He's worn out. He's not Jesus. He's just a man. 
He's got his own fears, his own doubts, his own things that he's wrestling with. Plus, he's trying to lead these people so they don't end up perishing at sea. He knows what he's talking about. He's not professionally a sailor, but he already established, we see in his record of his, in his epistles, that he has been shipwrecked three times. Hopefully, that implies there were some successful trips in there. So he's a seasoned mariner in his own right as a lay mariner, right? So he says, we need to stay here. They don't. They're not listening to him. But when he said, an angel of the Lord came to me, you're not going to perish, but you need to stay on the ship. And then they began to listen to him because they saw that he knew what he was talking about and it goes beyond his sailing experience. There's something else operating in him here. Why is he broken? That's not hard to figure out. Why does he need to be, have this great encouragement from the brethren? Why does God send them like a great army of nurses to come down and comfort him and give him the affection and the right hand of fellowship and hugging him around the neck why? We don't have a lot of information that talks about Paul, what Paul was thinking or how he felt. But we sure can assume the condition he might have been in after this long, terrifying ordeal at sea where now he's largely the de facto captain, the leader in the ship physically exhausted, his strength completely depleted. I often wondered as I'm studying all of this how I would have been emotionally wrung out. His spirits had to have reached low ebb, wouldn't you say? I mean, how could you be a spiritual giant in circumstances like this? We understand that in our own experiences. This journey that's taken six months. Well, we know something. We know that in God's economy, ministers of the gospel in the care of souls are frequently given in equal measures to both joy and elation and fear and depression. I want to read something to you just to bear that out. Most of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon and his book, Lectures to My Students. He has a portion in there. I want to read just a couple of of segments, and we know that he suffered greatly in terms of depression and coming to low places, and we know he had an equal bit of elation and passion just by the things that we read. But he points out Luther's life. He says this, the life of Luther might suffice to give a thousand instances, and he was by no means the weaker sort. <laughs> That's for sure. His great spirit was often in the seventh heaven of exaltation, and as frequently on the border of despair. His very deathbed was not free from tempests, and he sobbed himself into his last sleep like a great wearied child. That's our giant, Martin Luther, who lit the match that's called the Reformation. Good men, Spurgeon goes on, our first, he says this, it is of need be that we are sometimes in heaviness. And listen, why does God do that to Paul? 
Why does he do it to Martin Luther Spurgeon? It is of need that we are in sometimes heaviness. Good men are promised tribulation in this world. Promised it, mind you. The ministers may expect a larger share than others, that they may learn sympathy with the Lord's suffering people and may be fitted shepherds of an ailing flock. Our work, when earnestly undertaken, lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression. Who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking to the dust? End quote. Not Paul. He's a man. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul himself writes in verse 8 to 11, For we do not want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be without this information, is how he's using the term, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You sound like Elijah under the terebinth tree, yeah? Hiding in the cave because of Jezebel. You, You sound like Job. You sound like a number of biblical characters. Indeed, this is common. This isn't unusual for the man that God has called to do this kind of work. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's it. It's over. We're, brace yourself, brothers. We're, we're dead men walking. But that was to make us, aren't you glad that he gives us the reason? And he knows why. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So though he slay me, what? Yet he will raise me up again. Isn't that the belief of Abraham? Absolutely. What else would cause a reasonable, God-fearing, mature man to raise a knife above his only son? Though he has me slay him, yet he must raise him again because of his what? Promise, that's right. He made the promise. And this is a test of my faith. Unwavering. That's the Apostle Paul. Standing on the bow as this ship is beaten and blown apart. Nobody knows where they are or where they're going. He has one thing in mind, and that's what Christ told him that he must do. Standing with his face like flint, that withered and broken body never wavered in his faith. God who raises the dead, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 1, he delivered us from such greatly, from such deadly peril and he will deliver us. Oh, for such faith. On him we have set our hope. Not on any human being. Don't do that to them. Not a husband, wife, a mom, or a dad, a boss, a neighbor. As well-meaning and sincere, as great of a resource as they've been your whole life, it doesn't matter. He will deliver us. He has delivered us. He will deliver us again. On him we set our hope. 
I like what A.W. Tozer said. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Without doubt, we of this generation have become too soft to to scale great spiritual heights. Salvation has come to mean deliverance from unpleasant things. End quote. Talk about our lack of understanding. Our faith must endure to the end of our journey because it is faith alone that carries us to our destination. Now, do you understand who affords you the grace to fill you with faith to get you there? Whew, good. So I don't have to gin that up myself? No. If you belong to him, you will have the faith to get you where he wants you to go. That's his what? Promise. Promise. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Paul saw the loving kindness and the goodness of his fellows, of his fellow Christians when he sees them. First at the Apius Market and then at three taverns 10 miles up the road. Those are God's appointments for his servant. Enough. Enough. It's like the Lord said to his avenging angel when David had sinned, right? It is enough. He's been through enough. And he knows, doesn't he? He knows. I remember asking my mother in March when I was able to see her before she passed away a few weeks ago. And I hope to be able to mention this at the service that she asked me to conduct this coming weekend for her memorial service. I said, how, how, how do you carry yourself with such grace and poise, such a calm and gentle demeanor in the face of death? She said, God told me that he'll never Give me anything that I cannot endure. Nice allusion, Mom, to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no trial that's overtaken you, but such is common to all men, and God is faithful. God is faithful. You don't have to work that up. God is faithful who will, with that temptation or trial, make a way of escape. It's going to be there that you may be able to what? Endure it. She clung to that promise right up until the Lord came down and called her home July 29th, my father's birthday. The way the Lord sends his messages. Verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. So, 
Now they have to make the 130-mile trek on foot from Puteoli up to Rome, which they do. It probably took five to six days, somewhere in there, but they were used to that. Paul has logged over 3,000 miles now, most of it by on foot. So I want to finish our time together this morning then, taking a look at seven salient standards for the saints as Paul sails the surly seas to safety. Give it to me. Come on, brother. There's eight S's there. You know how long I've been waiting for this moment? (laughs) Just destroyed such a solemn moment, didn't I? (laughs) I do that well. Solemn. See, she goes, he's going to add to it. You just did it. (laughs) He started out with Acts in our text. We started this text, this journey with Acts 28, verse 1, after we were brought safely through. If there was ever an opportunity for a human being to say, I told you so, it's when they all landed, 276 souls landed safely at Malta. So yeah, he sailed the surly seas to safety. And it's his faith that got him there. The first principle I want us to notice is hospitality. You remember this. All of these are drawn from where we've been with the apostle. The lessons that we take as our own. Hospitality, the manifestation of good fruits from a heart filled with love, mercy, kindness, and goodness. And you remember the reciprocal nature of hospitality because when they received The apostle, well, he was invited into the home of Publius, the the mayor, essentially, of Malta. And then finding out, Paul finding out his father was sick with dysentery, he lays his hands on him, he heals him. The people find out, so they come to Paul and he heals them. So they send the, the rest of the passengers off, including Paul, with honor and everything that they would need. Understand the reciprocal nature when we're acting the way Christ wants us to, which is hospitably. That was a big word in God's economy. We've diminished it to come over sometime and share supper with us. There was healing going on here. There was supplying the needs. There was building a fire for those cold and wet passengers And it engenders that in other people when it's offered. We have to remember that. We're to be hospitable just to our neighbors, right? Wrong. We're to be hospitable to whom? Strangers. The word they used here translated in English, it's barbaroi, it's barbarians. It's people that speak another language, people whose culture we don't understand, things you don't understand end up creating fear, which turns into animosity if we aren't careful. They're showing us what it means to extend the kindness of Christ hospitably to other people and watch him be able to work in that 
reciprocal way through the kindnesses of others. Very important lesson we looked at. Second, Paul's selfless compassion and care and concern that he had for everyone on the ship. Remember that? From chapter 27, 22, and verse 33 to 37. First of all, in 22, where he's encouraging them, hey, you're not going to perish. An angel came to me. We're all going to be saved. And then the great apostle, with all that he's going through, they rejected his first counsel from verse 10. And he noticed that they hadn't eaten. He has the, outs- the, the ability in Christ to look outside of himself, to step outside of his egocentricity that he has as a fallen man and notice something, a need, a pressing need of other people. He could have worked up a pretty good attitude toward these people. He rejected his original counsel to winter at Fair Havens. No, they didn't do it. How many of us would have copped an attitude at that point and said, well, you guys are on your own. I'm not going to notice whether or not they need a sandwich. You know? Go fishing. He says, you haven't eaten. You're weary. We must eat together. He's preparing food. He's breaking bread. He's praying with them. Impressive. The compassion of Jesus Christ in this man. The care and concern. A living visual corporeal Christ living through the apostle as he's sharing the kind heartedness of his Lord. That's to be us. Third, God's protection is promised to his children, but it operates within and according to his sovereign plan. See, this is where we can get hung up, isn't it? Paul, how many times could he have said, I'm supposed to get to Rome. I shouldn't be held up by the Rome by the soldiers. I shouldn't be held up by the Sanhedrin. I shouldn't have to sit in this prison under Governor Felix for two years. What was he thinking during that time? I'll tell you what he I'll tell you what he was thinking by the record of his life and the things that he wrote. He's thinking this is where God has me. This is where God wants me. I don't know why. It's when we enter in to try to figure out the mind of God when he clearly said in Isaiah, My ways are what? Not your ways. My goodness was Paul probably the best example of that ever. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Stop trying to be a fourth member of the Trinity. It's triune. All those positions are filled. He doesn't scoff at providence. He he knows that God will bring him protection but it operates within his sovereign will and his plan. I'm going to get you there. You will get there, but hold on to your hats. I could have, could you ever have guessed the route he'd have you on in your life? There's no way I could have figured out what God was doing in my life, in my salvation experience in the different places I've lived New York City to Los Angeles to out here being in Tennessee for 23 years. I mean, who could put something like that together? God, for his own purpose. Many opportunities for Paul to say, this is crazy. This can't be part of the plan. Three months on this boat, and now it's being blown apart? Job 23, 13 to 14. Job's getting the idea. Listen, he is unchangeable. He speaks of God. 
And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Or Isaiah fourteen twenty four and 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purpose, so shall it stand. But the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? But let's hear from the record. Let's hear it from Paul's own lips, so to speak. Let's see what he has to say in the final letter that he penned that ended up in Scripture anyway. This was shortly before he died. This is the end of the letter, too. This is Second Timothy during his second imprisonment in Rome when he's about to be beheaded. He writes this. In 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me. There he goes again, absolutely convinced. From every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. And ever. Amen. He didn't keep you safely. He didn't keep evil from you. What sort of a perspective is this? How do I get it? I crave that perspective. You ought to as well. How is it that God can promise to keep us safe and to rescue us and deliver us and yet bad things happen. Well, you remember the principle? Bad things are no longer bad when you make God your dwelling place and your refuge. At that point, they are good things that for the time are a mystery to us. Either that or you're going to have trouble understanding what Romans 8.28 is all about. For the people that love God, all things work together for what? Good. For His purpose, which is to make you like Christ. You'll find that in verse 29. These are good. These are good. They're not just acceptable. They're good. In His plan for me, they're good. He will deliver me. He did deliver him. He delivered him to a guillotine or to the axe man who separated his head from his body. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I. Hope in him is the ESV. I like the New King James. Yet will I trust in him. Because in killing a person that belongs to him, did he not deliver them? <laughs> oh, so the, we, we must have a muted version of what we expect to find in heaven if we say that's no deliverance. They're going to kill me. Awesome. Delivered from this place, this mess, this sewer that we're in. Praise the Lord. He understood that.
4, God often waits until his people exhaust themselves completely before he delivers them. That's 27, 18 to 20, where they're, they're doing everything that they humanly can. They're pitching off all of the ship's tackle. They're throwing out all of the cargo to make it lighter so that it sails up over the waves instead of being heavy and being battered by the waves. They've, and they're, they've got to be exhausted in having done all that. And it's at that point in verse 20 when they say they've lost all what? Sometimes he needs to get us there, doesn't he? Exhaust all the human resources that we've expended to try to spare ourselves and to deliver ourselves as our own pseudo-savior. He often does that. God uses these trials to crush our independent spirits, our independence and our self-sufficiency, and show us the failure of worldly remedies. You rely on worldly remedies if you belong to him. If you rely on worldly remedies long enough, they're going to fail you. At some point, they will fail you, and that's intentional. It's not because God is being mean. It's because he's being kind. He's being good. He allows us to exhaust ourselves, just completely spend ourselves in trying to fix our own problems so that he might secure our dependency on him alone. This may be strange to you, but a passage that came to mind to make this point to me was Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Do you, do you see how I got there? Let me read it to you. He has to exhaust us till we're completely depleted. That's what we see on the ship. So he's speaking to Ezekiel, his servant. He gives him visions. And he's given him this vision where he is in this dry valley and it's filled with bones. And so I'm going to just capture this portion in verse 11 to 14 just to make our point so we can move along. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is what? Lost. We are clean cut off of your resources, yeah. You consider yourself as good as dead, as Paul once did. He wrote that, remember? Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. Isn't that fantastic? You don't get it, we're dead, we're lying in our graves here. We're completely cut off, we're just bones. 
I will, you, you should read the whole account from verse one and following. It's just fantastic. I don't want to take the time to do that, but I create life. I am life. When I'm cut off from you, things die. Because when I come, I give life. You see? But you don't understand. There's nothing left to live here. It's not like a, a corpse that you can get the heart beating again. No, let the wind and the dust blow in. Let years pass. Let, let it be completely exhausted so that you know that I am God. And it is not a difficult thing for me to create life where there was once death. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. How about you? Dead. Dead is dead. There wasn't some little bit still pulsating in me so I could make a decision for Christ. Dead, friends, is dead. If you think there might be, Go to the hospital, go down into the morgue, pull all the drawers out and preach your heart out and see if you can get any response. Take some pulses. Dead is dead. That's his point here. I bring life. I raise up life. You are my people. You can get to the point where you're at the bottom of that sea, Paul, all of you, and I will raise you up. This is what Paul embraced wholeheartedly. And what we're called to embrace. Number five, divine protection is provided when faith, trust, same thing, prevails. We see that in verse 25 of chapter 27 where Paul makes this statement on the ship. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. Just before that, the angel said, do not be afraid, Paul. Verse 24, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I believe that by faith. I believe that without question. That's when I alluded to Job. You see it there in your reference. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he turned me into a valley of dry, dead bones with no flesh left on him, yet I will hope in him. That's Paul. Paul's unshakable faith was in a God. You remember where he said in verse 23 and 25 of chapter 27, it's a, his faith was in a God to whom he, do you remember? Belonged. And who he what? Worshipped. See, when you have that, when you have an understanding of our union with Christ means possession. I am in him and Christos. I don't think there is a writer of New Testament scripture that uses that term more often than the Apostle Paul, and Christos, in him. You are in him who is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets there but through me. Nobody gets to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven but through me. But in me, 
you will be safe. Incredible. The theologian Clowney said, God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior, end quote. It's well said. Six, faith or trust in God produces internal peace in the midst of the storm. That was Paul. We see that in him. In our mind's eyes, we're going through this story. We see him there remaining calm in this raging storm as the ship is being blown apart, leaning on one thing, the promise of God, without wavering. Isaiah 26, 2-4, Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an everlasting rock. And you remember this story from the New Testament. This same Lord in Mark chapter 4, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking in on the boat. You remember that story? A lot like what Paul's going through. This is the disciples, isn't it? Breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. They're drowning. They're perishing. Tempest is blown up. They're experiencing a similar situation to Paul and Jonah. But let's not go there. <laughs> but he was in the stern. What was he doing? Jesus. Asleep on a cushion. What do you, what? I hope you always, you, 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 you're careful to ask the questions I try to ask when I'm reading these things, why would this be in the record? Why, why is this an eternal statement being made? Why is this important? He is making a point. How can you sleep in this storm? And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Look who they're saying that to. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, important for us, Why are you so afraid? Why? Did you see me sleeping down there? Yeah, because I can control the weather, because I made the sea. And you belong to me. As he said to his disciples, O ye of little faith, trust, hope, and don't let go. Cling to the mast of that ship you're on as it's being battered. And trust he will deliver me if he takes my life. And number seven, finally, embrace with patient endurance the irrevocable promises of God. He is, as we've read in already a couple different places, the unchangeable God. He doesn't revoke the promises he makes. Sometimes Christians are wrongheaded in thinking that. 
that they disqualified themselves from receiving the promises of the living God. As though we have that kind of power. If we remain in his hands, he will keep us. We embrace with patient endurance these irrevocable promises until our journey is complete and we reach our destination. Listen carefully as we bring this ship in for a landing. Hebrews 6, 11 to 20. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, that's God, verse 14, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's what allowed him to raise the knife in perfect, explicit Obedience to God. Surely I will bless and multiply you, verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Is it shaking your life up a little bit? He promised. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, that's human beings, An oath is final for confirmation. So they make an oath. That's what they were doing back then. Even people did that. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who are the heirs of the promise? You and I. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold on fast the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why do we doubt? Why does he have to rebuke our weak faith? When will we trust him? When will we believe he's going to keep his promises even and especially when life doesn't make any sense? This route is not only circuitous, it's dangerous. I don't like this. I don't want to be afflicted with this. I don't want to have to endure the things I'm enduring. I will get you there. This verse 15, And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, I like the NKJV there having patiently endured. It's both. You're waiting, and in the waiting, you're enduring. Hupamone, you're bearing up under something. 
And he is faithful. Endured what? What, O oh Lord? The mystery of God's providences? That which you called bad. I got bad news today. Is actually what? Good. That is just for the moment a mystery to us in terms of how we understand that is good. Write it down if you must. But remember that. The secret thing, put underneath that Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to whom? To God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children forever and ever so that he can, as a shepherd, continue to guide us and continue to reveal his promises to us that we might be comforted by that. We heard from Isaiah 40, the shepherd that he is, carrying those in his arms. Do we believe? Do we believe the the good shepherd passage in John chapter 10 where he says, out of all those the Father has given me, I will live maybe 10%, 20. None. Why? Because he it is that carries you. It's his promise to keep. He made the oath. It's about him, not us. But it affects us. The slowness sometimes in these promises being fulfilled is what causes us to perhaps be tempted to doubt or question. Throughout this journey, Paul patiently endured the promise that Jesus Christ had given him as we looked at it in verse 11 of chapter 23. Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Twice now, he's assured him, once himself in person and another through an angel on the ship. Though it is through faith and patience that we inherit the problem, pro- promises, as it says, yet God has solemnly pledged that he will provide the grace necessary for you to have the faith to see you through. Because it's to whose glory? His. And so we say to him what? Thank you. Oh, thank you. Dear God, thank you. We finish with this idea, this wonderful concept from the Hebrews passage, chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The anchor is Christ himself. He sustains his people in this world. He sustains us. He is the anchor in those storms. We're in quite a storm, are we not? Unless you don't have any access to the internet and don't have a television or a radio. The wicked stir things up, as I say, I said, like, like, like a great storm-tossed sea. Isaiah fifty-seven twenty: The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. That's that's 
That's the sea that we're in. And he will get us to shore, as he did Paul and all 276 souls that made it to shore. But it's not our steadfastness, our faith. We're such a rock, aren't we? It's the love of Christ. It's his faithfulness. It's his power that gets us there. That's the amazing thing. Psalm 9, 9 to 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. It's Jesus who is with us on that storm tossed vessel of our lives who will see us through these dark waters and get us where we need to go as things get battered in Hebrews 12 verse 2 it is Christ alone who is entering behind the veil isn't it the founder and perfecter of our faith who did that because of the joy that was set before him enduring the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. That is our anchor when he sat down and he is alive. And because he is, so will you be if you trust in him. That's the whole point. He is the archagos. I love that term. The Greek word for founder. It can mean pioneer. It can mean originator. It can mean leader. It mean, it was used in Greek antiquity as the commander of a great army that never stood in the back shouting and barking out orders. He leads from the front by example. He shows us the way. He is the almighty anointed one who on that ship with us took the great rope and tied it around his waist and dove into those stormy waters and swam himself to shore and pulled on that rope so that we could follow him to safety. And without him, we would all perish. You have to decide whether you know him in that way. You have to decide. And for those of us who do know him, the text says in Hebrews, we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Those are the things that weigh you down and drown you. And we run with endurance the race set before us, looking to There he is. I see him on the shore. We didn't know if he was going to survive what he went through. He dove into the greatest storm ever. How could he survive it? But look, there he is on the shore. Not just waving. I'll pray for you all. He made a way. He's the anchor. He's pulled the rope tight cost him his own life but now because he is the life he's alive and because of that so are you and I who have trusted in him for salvation 
you have a moment or two to talk to him. He's alive. He's real. And he's here. Speak with him now. Father, we thank you so much. First of all, in this wonderful text, delivering the Apostle Paul in the way that you did, which brings us hope. Thank you for all the lessons that we've learned these through all these three-plus years that we've been in this history of your creating the church, your church, your bride. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who hear who do not know you, not in this way, not in this capacity. They did, may have heard your name, but they didn't understand you in this role, in this capacity. You are not only all man when you we're here, you are very God. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one makes it to shore, the blessed shore of heaven's glory apart from you. You hold the rope. See us home safely, Lord, because we suspect the seas are going to get rougher. May you be glorified in those of us who are making this journey by your protection and safety. In Christ's name we pray, amen.